Good morning. My name is Tiffany Louie. And I'm Tom Reynoso. And we'll have you stand again. <laughs> Our scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Peter 2, 9-25. And in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1511. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. Live such good lives among the nations that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme human authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love your fellow believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Servants, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you are treated roughly for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Again, did I really hear you say thanks be to God for that whole thing? Were, were there some parts of that, that that are harder to say thanks be to God than other parts? Well, we will see, won't we? Uh, today what I want to talk about is how we live after we've experienced a life-changing event. Life-changing means life's going to be different, so what's going to be different? Uh, what I'm thinking about is this. Um, I, I heard a man being interviewed one morning who had won a multi, multi, multi-million dollar lottery, like a hundred million dollars, and before he had been homeless. And when they interviewed him, he was back to being homeless with nothing again. He'd, he'd lost everything. And what they talked to him about was so insightful. He said, um, I woke up one morning after winning the lottery, and I said, now what? 
I mean, my life had always been directed by just trying to survive. I had to figure out ways to get something to eat and figure out ways to find a place to sleep. But I had a lot of friends and my friends were all in the same boat as I was in. And now they wanted all sorts of things from me and my family, too. But the people around me who had as much money as I did weren't the kind of people I enjoyed and they didn't want to be with me either. So I kept thinking that if I just bought things, that life would be better. So I bought and life didn't get better. And sooner than I could have ever imagined, it was all gone. Now, I don't know how many lottery winners we have here at church. More people, lottery losers, right? But I'm guessing that most of us have had those life-changing events in our lives. And the next day we wake up and we say, now what? I thought about my own situation. When, you know, I was a, a student in university and grad school for so many years. Right, Chris? I, I thought I'd get an amen. Too many years, uh, she felt. And for all of those years, any of you who have studied what it felt like forever, through those years, your life was just directed and, and guided and shaped and molded by school. I mean, you'd sign up for classes, you'd go into the class, you'd get the celibate, you'd look at all these things. Every day, the things you had to read and things you had to do, the tests you had to take, the papers that had to be done, and then you'd finish and start yet again. It just over and over again, year after year after year, semester after semester after semester. Well, after all of these years, when I'd finally finished my doctorate, I walked across the platform and, and got the degree. And I woke up the next morning and I thought, everything is going to be great. You have euphoria. I was glad that I'd finished. Chris was even happier than I had finished. <clears throat> but I was still the same person. And uh, I didn't quite know what to do. I thought I'd have a whole lot more respect from the church people I was pastoring. And maybe my family would treat me better. My kids would call me Dr. Dad or, you know, some, something like this. But the fact is, I wasn't quite sure how to live life. Everything had to change. And what sets in, and because we have so many who have done this in our church, is what many call postmortems. Just depression. You're not, it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Now that brings us to 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, what he tells us is the most life-changing experience in all of the world is something that we have experienced. Verse 4 of chapter 2, we have come to Jesus. Verse 9, we have been rescued out of darkness and brought into light. We have experienced the most life-changing experience in all of the world. But after that happens... How are we then to live? And that's what the rest of 1 Peter is all about. You can imagine it. You come to church. You've now come to Jesus. He is now at the center of your life. It's what you've been longing for. You've been trying to find a way to really live before. Now you have found the one for whom you were made. You were made to know God and you have come to know God through faith in Jesus. And then you read this great verse in verse 9. Now you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You belong to God. And you walk out of church. And you go back into your family and into your marriage, into the workplace. And you, you try to tell them this. You know what I am now? Uh, I'm a royal priesthood. I'm a part of a holy nation. I belong to God. And what do they say? Have you lost your mind 
or, or so what? Just get back and do the things you're supposed to do. Get out there and wash the dishes, whatever you're supposed to do. And you sit there and say, what, what's different about this? Well, that's what Peter takes up. And I'll tell you, it's going to be worth coming to church a lot because it's just practical teaching of how we are to live once we've come to Jesus. And the key for all of it is found in verse 21. In verse 21. It is to this life of service, is what he's going to get at, to a life of going and serving that you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Bottom line, once we have come to Jesus, we are to follow the example of Jesus and serve wherever he puts us. So that's what I want to begin to talk about as he talks about this in several different arenas. But first, I want to go back to what I call one more time. Uh, I've talked about this almost every week in my series in First Peter, but I don't want anybody to come to church and miss this. And it's what I've called, we're really God's piece of work. Uh, I've been quoting Denny Balesi in that when he used to call our whole church a piece of work. I don't know if he meant it as positively as I do. I'll have to ask him. But what I'm saying is that when we come to Jesus, it really is God's work in us. It's not going to be us saying, with my own strength, I'm going to go at it. Look at verse 9 once again. God is the one who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I come back to this again because when we begin talking about To live for Jesus differently means we follow his example. I think about so many people who say that's what the Christian life is all about. We just look and see how Jesus lived and we live that way. Uh, And it's as if Jesus first is going to be our example. And then we are able to, to live that way ourselves. But I want you to know that it isn't that way. The Bible consistently says first Jesus must be our rescuer from a former way of life where we couldn't do it ourselves. And only then can we begin to follow his example. I have so many people who say, yes, I like the life of Jesus. So I'll just uh, sort of live the way he lived. And they sort of reduce it down to being nice people wherever we go. But then I say, well, let's see what Jesus said about how we're supposed to live. And we're going to see that following the life of Jesus, the example of Jesus, is such a lofty calling that none of us could ever do it in our own strength. Do, Do you believe me when I say that? Just look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and you're going to see all sorts of things. Jesus said, well, you have heard it said that you should not murder. And you say, that's easy enough. He said, but I'm telling you, you shouldn't even say a hateful word against another human being. You have heard it said you should not commit adultery. A little harder, you might think, but maybe possible. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I say to you the way that you're meant to live is that you should not have a lustful thought about any other human being. Uh, Some may come to you, he says, and they'll say, even if you don't like them, we want you to carry this load for a mile. And if they do, you know what he said? Do it gladly and say, I'll carry it a second. And then we see the way he saw people and treated people and dealt with people. And we know that in our own strength, we could never get there. In fact, the very thing that brings us to Jesus is when we begin to realize that we're not living the way that we should. So that first, Jesus must be our Savior from our sins. And only then can we follow His example. You know what you and I need? We need forgiveness of sins so that our past can be put behind us. We need a new power 
within to be able to live differently. And we need a place where we can grow so that we can be strong enough to live for Jesus. And that's where it starts. And it starts when we trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our rescuer. As he puts it in verse 4, when we come to Jesus, then we're rescued out of this way of life in which we try to do it on our own that he calls darkness. And we're brought into the light when at last we can begin to know God and live for him. So once again, I'm just going to ask as clearly as I can, have you come to Jesus? Is he your savior and rescuer from your sins? Has he brought you out of the patterns of the past and brought you into this beginning of a new life that is in the light? I've tried to think, how can I make that simpler? Is it just too religious a talk? Maybe this. Someday when you stand before God and he is saying, why should I think that you are in my eternal family? What would your answer be? Would it be something like this? Well, it's not on what I've done. I keep falling short. So my confidence not in myself. My confidence, my hope, and my faith are in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And he told me that if I trust what he has done and trust him I will be brought into your family. My confidence and my faith are in Jesus alone. And when you say that, when you know that, then you're ready to live. Okay, how then do we live? And that's where Peter begins. We're going to cover some ground. Life change number one. What's going to be different is that when we come to Jesus, we begin to experience a freedom from a life of just craving temporary things, things that do not satisfy. Look at verse 11. Abstain, is the way my version translates it, from sinful desires. Stay away from those desires that war against your soul. And that soul being that part of us that relates to God and is to be filled with God. I think the translation I have is a little bit unfortunate, and I'll tell you why. Uh, You know, Peter... I say this every week, Don. He wasn't writing in English. He was writing in Greek. And this word that is translated desires is the word epithumia. It really means over-desires, fleshly desires, having too much of a desire for physical, temporary, material things. He said, stay away from thinking those things can fill your soul. Stay away from just going after those things in your life that you think, that's what I have to have to be able to live. Because you found what you need to live in God. Now, here's the way I I usually meet people. Most of the people that I meet, I really find want to live well. Very, very rarely do I ever meet a person who gets up in the morning and says, I hope I just live a rotten life today. Uh, There are a few people, you know, you get to a point where you give up. But mostly we want to live well. And then we have to get up in the morning and ask, how do I do this? And, and we think, and the world seems to promise us, if we experience, if, if I get a raise this week, if, if I get a promotion, if I can complete this, if I have this relationship, or, you know, almost anything in this world, then life will be good. So we go after that thing. We crave it, we long for it, and it becomes an over-desire. 
because we think that is the thing for which I have been made to live. We go after it. And then when we go after it so much and sometimes we actually get that thing, we get that razor promotion. We, we get that girlfriend or boyfriend, that pleasure that we thought was going to do it. And when we get it, we think, well, I wasn't it. I have to go after something else. Now, it's an overdesire. And it can be for bad things. And they just trap us for sins. But they can be for good things. You know that. We can over-desire things that are really good. I'm a parent. A good part of life that God's given us is our family. And I think a good longing of a parent is to, to have children that, that, that live well and that flourish and so forth. But do you see that even children and our longing for our children can become an over-desire. Uh, we, we can begin to focus all of our lives around our children. And, and we've seen it. Go out on the sports field if you don't believe me and just watch it. Children, parents living their lives through their children. Obsessing over their children. The children fail at sports. They, they just, they're so depressed. If the children don't want to be with them and reject them and, or their values anyways, they die a death inside. Always afraid of losing them. Smothering them. Smothering them. Any smothered... Well, don't, don't, no voting. No, no voting here suffocating our children. You see, it's a good desire. But those children can never be God. They can never fill our souls. And what happens is, not only do we die, but they also are hurt as well. Now, I've been asking, has anybody else talked about this other than a pastor? I found a couple of things that I think are so insightful. There's a humorist named Cynthia Heimel. And in one of her books, entitled, If You Can't Live Without Me, then why aren't you dead? <laughs> Pretty good title. She has one chapter on celebrities. And I'll just show you what she wrote. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Three celebrities, and she names them, and I'm not going to. Three celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten, practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you get what you want and realize you want to kill yourself. You see, these three all wanted epithumia. They wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. And the morning after each of them became famous, then they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing that they were striving for that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Another one that I came back to, I read this to you several years ago, but I find this to be so insightful. It was a more personal testimony of this great quarterback, Tom Brady, who had won a number of Super Bowls with the New England Patriots and married uh, a supermodel. And then he was interviewed 2005 by Steve Croft on 60 Minutes. And I just loved his honesty and transparency and the insights into living. Here's what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't 
This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. See, we have been, Christians, we've been rescued from trying to find fulfillment in temporary things. We, we have a soul. See the way he puts it. They, these things, this epithumia, this, this, uh, this desiring wars against that part of us made to know God. We're human. You and I are human. We're made in the image of God. We're made to know God. And nothing else, no temporary thing, even good things, can fill his place. When he comes into that place, we're set free from that. Set free to be able to live differently. I've been reading this and it's, it's like God saying to me, Greg, you're not a rock. You're not a plant. Put in any animal or vegetable that you want to into that place. You're human. You're made, I made you in my image. I made you to know me. Now don't put anything else into my place in your soul. And what happens when we come to Jesus in this whole section from four on is we find a cornerstone. We find a center to our beings that makes us so that we can enjoy the world that he's put us in. We don't have to expect them to be God because they can't be anyway. We're set free from that craving to live. Thank you, Lord. But then how do we live? Well, life change number two. We have a freedom, a new freedom from that, but a freedom to be able to leave and and to serve in the nation as as Jesus served. Uh Uh-oh, pastor, you're getting into politics here. Well, don't worry too much about me. I'm just going to cover scripture here, so we'll be okay, don't you think? Look at what he says in verse 13. So, you're going to live such good lives among the nations, verses 11 and 12, that they'll see you, but in seeing you, they'll give praise to God. So, practically speaking, that means submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And in verse 16, he'll, and, and then he goes on to say, that includes the emperor and the governor and all authorities in this world. Live... As free people, because you're free. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, live as God's slaves. Live as free people, live as God's slaves. Does that seem paradoxical to you? Now remember, when Peter wrote this letter, 1 Peter, he was writing to people who were living in the worst political regime imaginable. They were under the yoke of Rome, and the emperor was a crazy man, named Nero. He was narcissistic. He used all of his power just for himself. And at the end of his life, when his his leadership was failing, he blamed the Jews and the Christians for his failure. I'll tell you, this, this was a rotter. And yet still to this, the general principle that Peter gives us is we should be able to live as people whose general perspective is we are going to be good citizens in that country. Now, I think I pointed out last week there are two ways that our brothers and sisters before us have applied this to their lives. Number one, uh, they made a commitment that as followers of Jesus, they would keep the laws of their land scrupulously unless the laws of their land directly contradicted the laws of God. Such as Acts chapter 4, when Peter, who wrote this, was told, don't tell about Jesus anymore. And he said, I must obey God rather than people. So, But we are going to be law abiders, good citizens, submitting to authority unless God's law, the one over all laws, is, uh, is contradicted. And secondly, they made a commitment to pray fervently for their political leaders. And not just that God would get them out of office, but that God would actually bless and anoint their leadership, help them to make wise decisions, that the country would flourish under their leadership. 
They, they didn't live thinking, the only way I can really live is if I get into a different kind of a country. Our, our country's going to fail because of this awful leader. Why did they set, why were they set free from that? Because, verse 9, they were God's people. God's nation. And that's never going to fail. So they never had to, to fear all of these things that might happen. So without the fear of thinking, I can't really live unless things are happening in my country, they went out into the nation as good citizens, serving and making their nation a better place. Notice, live as free people, but always as slaves of God. Free people, but always belonging to God. What am I talking about? The kind of service he's talking about is the kind that most right-thinking Leaders, whether local leaders or national or international leaders, would say, if I have followers of Jesus in my place, I'm going to have people who make it by their lives, who make this country a better place. Because they're going to care about people, they're going to serve people, they're going to support the laws, and they're going to support and pray for me. Can you believe it? So that's what we should represent in our world. Does this mean that if the laws of our land contradict the laws of God, we still have to do what is wrong. Absolutely not. Does that mean that if our government's leaders are promoting injustice and, and thwarting good, that we should support that? Absolutely not. Uh, I want you to see a couple of phrases. Look in verse 13. We do this for the Lord's sake. Notice verse 13. Human authorities are instituted among men. Do you see it? Their authority is always under another authority, and especially the purpose of government in verse 14. It is to punish wrong and to commend what is right. So when we see our government punishing right and furthering what is unjust and wrong, we, like Jesus and like the prophets of old, must speak out against it. Now, I know this is a very complex and, and controversial area, so I've just tried to summarize a few principles to guide us and to give us some wisdom about how to live. Uh, principle number one. When we follow Jesus, we know that government is just a part of the authority structures that God has instituted in our world so that society can even function. Some people say they don't like authority, I'm just going to live the way I want to live. But I'm telling you, you really do like authority. Nothing is worse than anarchy. And uh, we, we Christians have learned that. That God is in control of all of them. And that in this world where it's an imperfect and fallen world and people don't respond to God, He has placed to restrain evil in this world all sorts of authorities. And without them, it's a mess. Everywhere, not just government, everywhere. What am I talking about? Well, I was thinking about it as the music team was playing today. Can you imagine if they got up there and say, we don't like authority. We're musicians. I'm going to play the way I want. And so uh, we, we have this melody line. And uh, Julian and Jeremy think, I don't really like that melody all that much. I can do a better one. I'm going to play the one I want to play. Now, look at this key. John Stuthers told us we had to play. I'm not going to play it in that key. I'm going to play it in whatever key I want to play it in. And rhythm. Who on earth set that rhythm? Can you imagine if Obi and Karush were over here and, and, and Karush thought, that's not the rhythm that we should be setting then. I'm going to play my own rhythm. And, and, and Julian says, I can play louder than them anyway. So I'm going to make sure the organ is drowning that out. And then, uh, then, then we have Johanna and Brandon over here with flute and bass. And they say, nobody can hear us anyway with all these things going. We're going to walk up and down the aisles and do whatever we want. What would it be? It would be a disaster. Chaos. No, we, we appreciate 
authorities in all areas of our life. And it's true when you go out of here and you drive your car. It's true when you play a sporting event. We, we want to make sure that we follow those things. And it is true. We who follow Jesus know this. And so our general inclination is that we want to make sure that we are good citizens uh, submitting to the laws of our land. Number two is a principle. We know that when we leave this place and go out into our nation, uh, we represent not only ourselves, we represent God and his church, the people of God. Notice again that verse, it's for the Lord's sake. And in verse 16, we will never use this freedom to cover up evil. In other words, we who come into God's family and know that we represent God and his family by the way we live, we're supposed to live in such a way that people will say, oh, that's what Jesus does in a person's life. We know that we're going to go out and try to seek by God's grace to live such good lives that our community will be a better place and people will muzzle their criticism about Jesus and about his church because of the quality of our service. May I simply say in this last couple of months, I've been meeting with a lot of our local governmental leaders and so many people in this church have done this well. Oh, I'm so proud. I go and meet with people. I'm just so proud because they say, oh, you know, we've met some of your people uh, working in our public schools. We've met some of your people who are involved with the homeless and, and, and mentoring in homes where they're having. I'm so thankful. But it's this, this commitment that leads to that. Principle three. We have learned about true freedom. When we follow Jesus, we know that biblical freedom is not the liberty to do whatever I want. That epithumia, my own desire, that's what got me into trouble. I didn't live well when I just did whatever I want. Biblical freedom is God setting us free to live as we ought. And if you don't like that, it's, it really is what brought us to God. We know we can't do it on our own when we're driven by our own desires, by our own free choices without even surrendering to God at all. We mess our lives up. But we have learned to find true freedom. And that's where that phrase comes in. We get to live as free people when we live as God's slaves. So, brothers and sisters, we have surrendered our wills to God. And when he says, be a good citizen and serve, we are ready to do it. And then fourth, sort of embracing all of them. The respect that we show for those in authority is just a part of what is to characterize all of our relationships. So we respect authority itself, but we also have learned to respect people in authority. Look at that beautiful verse 17. It's just such a... A great verse shows proper respect to everyone. Then love your fellow believers, fear God, and then even honor that emperor that you have. Notice how all embracing it's, it's a singleness of being. I, I say it so often when we come to Jesus, everything changes. And one of the things that changes is our eyes. We see people differently. Well, we see others who trust Jesus as my brother and sister, right, in Christ. We, we see the people in the world who may even reject us and, and the Lord Jesus as people made in God's image and for whom Christ died. We honor people because people are made in the image of God. No, notice the intensity of the words. We're going to respect everyone. We're going to have a love for our brothers and sisters. Family love for our brothers and sisters. The strongest word of all is we're going to fear God. But it's not a debilitating fear. Because when we fear God and seek to please Him above everything and fear displeasing Him more than anything, it sets us free 
from all other fears. And then we look at our leaders and we honor them. We would never always look for their flaws. We will wish and pray for their best. We who follow Jesus probably won't run attack ads, just focusing on all the bad things. We will long for our leaders to be better leaders and help make them that. So, bottom line, Jesus' followers will generally be known to be people who are committed to following the laws of the land, will respect authority, and will honor people who are holding those positions of authority when we see things that are happening that are promoting injustice and oppression and not furthering good, we'll speak out against it. What does it look like? I'll just quote you one person I agree with. You'll have to see if you do as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German pastor who stood against Nazism and then was put to death for his stand, would write this. And I think he summarizes it uh, so well. He said, we who follow Jesus will be good citizens when we are representatives of Christ in this world. But no political leader is above the law. When God's law is ignored and God-given authority is used to perpetrate evil and injustice, we must respect the office, but we must also act against evil. Now, we have to be careful in that acting. The Bible's not saying that we should go out and be people who gripe about people we don't like and and accuse them of anything that we can find that is wrong simply because we don't like them or the system. Remember, when Peter wrote this, if you had lived in that system, it was the worst imaginable system and this was one of the craziest leaders you could ever imagine. And still he told us to honor them and to be good citizens. Now, our time is about gone, but I want to say a word about this other area where our lives are to change. And that is the workplace. It's where most of us go to after we leave here. Life change number three. When we don't have to live for our work or possessions anymore, we're set free. So we're set free to go to the workplace to serve as Jesus served. Look at verse 18. Servants. That's the way I translate it. In reverent fear of God, submit yourself to those over you. And not only to your employers or to your bosses or masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, I'll just have to say a few words. Some of the Bibles that you probably have, verse 18, the first word is slaves. But I don't think that that's the right translation. The word for slave is found up in verse 16, doulos. Um, And that's for God. We're slaves of God. (laughs) We belong... Lock, stock, and barrel to God. It's a different word down here. It's oiketai, oikos, house. It means people who are, are workers in the place where you are. And it referred to uh, everyday workers and laborers. Almost the entirety of the Roman population would have fallen into this category. M- many people have translated it slaves because in the ancient world, different from America, when, once you were born into a certain kind of a, a job or a certain kind of economic status, you couldn't get out of it. You know, the American dream where we can go to school and get into all sorts, that didn't happen in the ancient world. So they felt locked into this kind of a job. So he's trying to tell, how do you go into that kind of job, especially if you have a rotten authority over you in the workplace? And they treat you harshly. And if you look at uh, verse 21, I believe it is, or 20, 
He even talks about potentially receiving a beating. But that isn't really the word that he uses either. He says, if you go in there, and the word that he uses is, if you are treated as harshly, and the word that is used for the way that Jesus was treated, it's found in the Gospels. The word for how Jesus was treated is what he uses here. So here's what he says, I think. When you go into that workplace that you go into, for them they couldn't get out of it, for us we have opportunities to move, but when you go into that workplace that you have accepted, and even if you are treated the way that Jesus was treated... The position that you should have is you should serve. You should be the one who works the hardest. You should long for your your, your boss to be able to thrive in his or her leadership. You should long for your business to get ahead because you are there. Because you are there serving and making it a better place. And if you say, "But, but there's injustice happening here. The same thing as I talked about before kicks in. We're not to support injustice and oppression. But the basic position is not that we should say, I never wanted to have this job. I wanted to have this job. And they're not paying me very much. So I tell you, I'm not going to get there on time. And when I get there, I'm not going to work very hard. And I'll tell you what, even if I take some of these pens and paper clips, they don't pay me enough anyway. Instead, we're going to go into that place knowing that we represent God, knowing that God is in there with us and that he has sent us into that place to represent him. And as Paul would say in Ephesians, we are going to work in that place as if we were working directly for the Lord. We're going to be the best workers because we represent Jesus in that place. The way I think about it is what I'd encourage you to do. Get there early. All right, I know that's a parting of the Red Sea miracle for Southern Californians. I know I'm probably asking for something that's not going to happen, but I think go ahead and get there early and then begin thinking about the people who are going to work around you and that person who sits next to you that just gets on your nerves. Pray that somehow you'll be a blessing to that person, that God will give you the patience of Christ for that person and that somehow God may, they may see that person may see the love of Christ in you. Pray, pray for your boss who has made so many bad decisions before. That God would give to that boss a compassion that you could never imagine that, that, that boss having. Pray for your company. That because you are there in the way that you work, that it will thrive and flourish. We should go with the attitude of Jesus to serve even sinners. Which he did for us. I told you this, to this you are called, because I want you to follow the example of Jesus who suffered so that you could live. So I've written up, just because I knew our time would be short, the general principle for living for Jesus in the workplace. Here's what I think. We should show by our lives that this workplace is a better place and a better business because we are there. Each day we go to work as long as that place is our place of work. See, we can move different from these, but as long as that place is the place where we work, we will show that those who belong to Jesus are the best, most trustworthy, most supportive, and most pleasant workers. Our guiding principle will be that we go to serve others at work in the way that Jesus served us while we were sinners. That service brought us to God Brings us healing. And that's the way we go into the world to represent him, to serve. 
And we're going to read this. And if you are like me, you're going to say, God, this is hard. (laughs) Right? And he's going to say, it is to this that you were called. When you were called out of darkness and into light. It is this way that your life will make a difference to the glory of God. And then you're going to come into church when it was so hard this last week to do that. And you're going to say, Pastor, do I ever need a word from the Lord? What would the Lord say to me? And if I'm faithful at all to this word, what I'm going to do week by week by week is fix our eyes on Jesus. Which Peter does at the end. And which I want to do now. What kind of difference does this kind of service make in the lives of people? Look again at verse 21. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example. That you should follow in his steps. Quoting Isaiah 53. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Then when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Notice, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For never forget, you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus' service in this way has made it so that our sins can be forgiven has given us this start of a new identity and a new life. And don't you love that phrase, begins to heal, heal those wounds that are inside of us. And if his service brought that blessing to us, what he is saying is when we leave this place and serve in this way, our lives will do the same in the places where God puts us. And will bring glory to God. May it be to his glory. Amen. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Uh, thank you.